Well, it's great to welcome you here. Uh, let's pray. Well, Father, we have sung, it is by grace that we come. Give us eyes to see your glory, to understand all that you have accomplished for us in your Son, and the very great privileges that are ours in Christ today. Thank you so much that we have your word. Draw near to each person gathered here today. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, if you knew that there was a special place that you could go where you could directly meet with God and hear Him speaking to you, would you go? Think about that. Could you stand before God with the knowledge that He knows everything about you, every thought, every desire of your heart? He's fully aware of all that you have done and said. And if there was a place on earth where you could go and be, as it were, transported into the throne room of heaven, would you go there? There was a time in history where there was such a place, and it was called the Tabernacle. And this morning, we're going to continue our mini-series of working through the Tabernacle. It's been part of our overall series of looking through the book of Exodus. And it'll really help you if you have a Bible. If you don't have a Bible, put your hand up. Someone will bring it to you. Uh, but please open your Bibles to um, Exodus chapter 25. As I say, if you don't have a Bible, put your hand up. It'll help you to have your eyeballs on this. It'll and turn to page 83 of Exodus chapter 25. This uh, special tent kind of dominates the closing chapters of the book of Exodus. About 11 chapters in all. So much detail. Alec Mortier calls it God's picture gallery. Both the idea of the tabernacle and all the details of it come from the Lord. It's all significant. I want to show you a little video animation of what it might have looked like uh, in a minute. Here's a, a brief fly-through of what it might have looked like. So for the Israelites, redeemed out of slavery in Egypt and heading to the promised land, this tabernacle was the place where heaven, as it were, touched down on earth. Each piece of furniture, something that God wanted to convey to them, a truth and spiritual reality that they all point to. So have a look at your Bibles in Exodus chapter 25 and verse 8. This is how the section begins. Then let them make a sanctuary for me, the Lord says, and I will dwell among them. Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. 
So God gave this tabernacle so that he could dwell among them as his people. Now, we don't have a tent like this anymore, nor do we have a temple in Jerusalem that replaced, that replaced it. And the reason that's not a problem for us as Christians is both the tabernacle and the temple are pointing us to the reality of God giving us his son so that he could live with us. The word became flesh and lived among us, or literally the word is tabernacled among us. And that's why all this tabernacle detail is still relevant for us today. Through it, we get to see a revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. This tabernacle is, is a God-given theater, as it were, with all its furniture as props, the ministry of the priests that, that, that give us categories that reveal God to us. Now, in this mini-series, we've kind of gone about it by imagining it from the perspective of the Israelites, um, how they would have experienced the tabernacle by kind of um, walking towards the outer courtyard, the perimeter curtain, coming around to the side where there was the, uh, the beautiful gate that gave entrance into the courtyard. They would have then seen the bronze altar of sacrifice. And beyond it, they would have seen the, the, the bronze base, uh, basin where there would be a place for washing. And they would have observed the priests entering into a curtain, into the actual tabernacle tent itself, divided into two spaces. The first place, the holy place that has the, uh, the, the gold incense altar that we've already considered. And also it has the lamp and the table where the bread of the presence was placed. And we're going to still look at those two items in the next two weeks. And then there was another curtain that veiled and sealed off uh, the holy place from the most holy place. And inside of that was the Ark of the Covenant. And that's what we're going to consider today. First, notice with me how the Lord instruct them to build it. If you look at verse 10. And by the way, as you look at the details, if you want to get a sense of the size of the wooden box, a cubit, the measure of a cubit was basically the distance between the elbow of an adult male to the fingertips, all right? So that's about a cubit. So 25 verse 10. Let them make an ark of acacia wood, two and a half cubits long. A cubit and a half wide, and a cubit and a half high. Overlay it with gold, both inside and out, and make a gold molding around it. Cast four gold rings for it, and fasten them to its four feet, with two rings on one side and two rings on the other. Then make poles of acacia wood, and overlay them with gold. Insert the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry it. The poles are to remain in the rings of this ark. They are not to be removed. So it's obvious that this is a very precious box, isn't it? It's overlaid with pure gold. This is a costly, shiny, beautiful box lifted off the floor by feet, which have these gold rings so that the wooden poles overlaid with gold can be inserted into it so that the whole box could be moved when the when the, when the Israelites set out as they wandered through the wilderness, this whole thing would have been packed up and it would have been moved and they would have never touched the box. The box was holy. If you want to read how serious it was to touch the box, just go and read Second Samuel and see what happens when user has the temerity to reach out and touch the ark. He gets struck down. 
Leave the poles in. Don't touch the ark. But as precious as the box uh, was, the real treasure was inside, as God goes on to explain in verse 16. Then put in the ark the tablets of the covenant law, which I will give you. Make an atonement cover of pure gold, two and a half cubits long and a cubit and a half wide. And make two cherubim out of hammered gold at the ends of the cover. Make one cherub on one end and the second cherub on the other. Make the cherubim of one piece with the cover at the two ends. The cherubim are to have their wings spread upwards, overshadowing the cover with them. The cherubim are to face each other, looking towards the cover. Place the cover on top of the ark and put in the ark the tablets of the covenant law that I will give you. There, above the cover, between the two cherubim that are over the ark of the covenant law, I will meet with you and give you all my commands for the Israelites. Now, everything here is deeply symbolic. If we can grasp it, we'll actually understand the good news of Jesus Christ. That's what's so exciting about this box. Well, let me explain that to you. Um, this is all foreshadowing Jesus. So let's consider what's on top of the Ark of the Covenant. The cherubim. I mean, this is just a, a, a potential model. of it. We don't know exactly what it looked like. But consider the cherubim on the atonement cover. Now, I don't know where this idea of um, cherubs being chubby-faced babies came from. Uh, it's got absolutely nothing to do with this awesome reality of these special angelic beings that we read about in the Bible called the cherubim. When God created everything out of nothing, he created both visible and invisible spiritual realities that included angelic beings. Now, the first mention of the cherubim are Genesis chapter 3, where they were placed by God with fiery swords to guard the way to the tree of life inside the Garden of Eden after Adam and Eve were cast out with their rebellion and sin. And so the role of the cherubim is not so much as messengers of God, but they remain in God's presence to guard, those, uh, uh, to guard the way into the, the presence of God, to deny access to anything unholy, to come into the presence of God. Uh, far from being chubby-cheeked babies, these are fiery, terror-inducing, angelic beings who guard the throne room of God. Now, keep your finger in Exodus and turn with me to an incredible description of the cherubim in Ezekiel chapter 1. And you'll find this on page 830 in the church Bibles. Page 830. 830. Ezekiel chapter 1. Where Ezekiel records a vision of God. And then in chapter 10, it tells us that what he saw were the cherubim. So if you look at Ezekiel chapter 1 and verse 4. I looked and I saw a violent storm coming out of the north. An immense cloud with flashing lightning, surrounded by brilliant light. The center of the fire looked like glowing metal, and in the fire was what looked like four living creatures. In appearance, their form was human. 
But each of them had four faces and four wings. Their legs were straight. Their feet were like those of a calf, gleamed like burnished bronze. Under their wings on the four sides, they had human hands. All four of them had faces and wings, and the wings of one touched the wings of another. Each one went straight ahead. They did not turn as they moved. Their faces looked like this. Each of the four had the face of a human being. And on the, other, on, on the right side of each had the face of a lion. And on the left, the face of an ox. And each had the face of an eagle. Such were their faces. They each had two wings spreading out upwards, each wing touching that of the creature on either side. And each had two other wings covering its body. Let's look at verse 13. The appearance of the living creatures was like burning coals of fire or like torches. Fire moved back and forth among the creatures. It was bright and lightning flashed out of it. The creatures sped back and forth like flashes of lightning. These are the cherubim. Look at verse 25. Then there came a voice from above the vault over their heads as they stood with lowered wings. Above the vault, over their heads, was what looked like a throne of lapis lazuli. And high above on the throne was a figure like that of a man. I saw that from what appeared to be his waist up, he looked like glowing metal, as if full of fire. And that from there down, he looked like fire. And brilliant light surrounded him, like the appearance of a rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day. So was the radiance around him. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell face down and I heard the voice of one speaking. If we could see a vision of heaven today, if our eyes could see this spiritual reality, this is what we would see. God seated on his throne enthroned above the cherubim. This is how God is described in different places in the Scriptures. Psalm 99 verse 1, The Lord reigns. Let the nations tremble. He sits enthroned between the cherubim. Or 2 Kings 19.15, And Hezekiah prayed to the Lord, Lord, the God of Israel, enthroned between the cherubim, you alone are God over all the kingdoms of the earth. The Ark of the Covenant, sitting in the most holy place, is an earthly symbol of a heavenly reality, representing the very throne room of God. This is why this is the most holy place. The gold cherubim, uh, with their wings outstretched on the atonement cover, are beneath the throne of God. That's why their faces are looking down away from God as an act of worship and reverence. Other pagan temples of that era are filled with images of their gods, lots of idols. There's no attempt to, to represent God. That would be breaking the Ten Commandments, wouldn't it? There is an empty space above the cherubim which was filled instead with, with the living presence of God himself. This is where God promised he would meet with Moses. Turn back to Exodus chapter 25. And look at verse 22 again. There above the cover, between the two cherubim that are over the Ark of the Covenant, 
I will meet with you and give you all my commands for the Israelites. According to Numbers chapter 7, verse 89, when Moses entered the tent to speak with the Lord, he heard the voice uh, 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 from between the cherubim, the voice of God addressing him above the atonement cover. So that's what's on top of the Ark of the Covenant. Let's think about what's inside. Inside, Moses is to place the stone tablets of the covenant law that God would give him. This section, this section of from about 25 to the end of 31, is actually all about um, the Lord instructing him on Sinai. The Lord says, come up to me, and I'm going to give you these stone tablets. And at the end of chapter 31, verse 18, when the Lord f- finished speaking to Moses on Mount Sinai, he gave him the two tablets of the covenant law, the tablets of stone inscribed by the finger of God. These stone tablets are the record of the covenant law spoken by God to Israel at Mount Sinai. Inscribed by the finger of God, it says. See, in God's throne room, there would be a permanent reminder of this special covenant relationship. Binding God with this redeemed people who had saved them. uh, That God had saved them and redeemed them and brought them to himself. And so if above the cherubim... uh, is the, is the throne of God, then the covenant law, in a sense, is under his feet. The ark is described in the Bible as the footstool of God. Listen to Psalm 132, verse 7. Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool, saying, Arise, Lord, and come to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. But I wonder whether you see the problem with this arrangement. There's a holy and righteous God on his throne, enthroned above the cherubim, these awesome angelic beings. And at his feet, a covenant agreement with clear commandments of how to stay faithful to this God by obedience to these covenant laws inscribed in stone. They're not in pencil. Uh, you, you can't rub them out and amend them and, and tweak them and, and change them and come up with slightly new suggestions. It's in stone. Yeah, we've got a problem here, haven't we? Just keep reading through the Old Testament and you'll see that Israel were not able to keep the terms of this covenant. In fact, just like us today, They were the kind of people who did end up serving other gods, who were prone to create and worship their own idols, who were, uh, found it very easy to lie, who forgot about resting on the Sabbath, who, 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 who did find it easy to covet and to take what did not belong to them. So back to my question at the beginning. If you knew there was a special place where you could directly meet with God and hear Him speaking to you, would you go? Would you stand there? Have we lived righteous lives where we could stand before the living God without shame or guilt? 
if we really had a true sense of the awesomeness of this God who is righteous and holy and enthroned above the cherubim, we will be rightly terrified of the thought of coming before him. We are not righteous. Not one person in this room. We have broken his holy laws. Justice would condemn us, would it not? It would exclude us from the presence of this holy God of glory and life and blessing. But I want us to see there is wonderful good news in the Ark of the Covenant. And it is found in the name of the lid on the Ark. The atonement cover. Look at verse 17. Make an atonement cover of pure gold. The Lord tells Moses. Martin Luther in his German uh, translation called it the mercy seat. Well, he did a German version of that. I won't pronounce that for you. Uh, William Tyndale took up the, the same term in his English Bible. The atonement cover was the place of mercy. This atonement cover was actually only used on one day every year in the Jewish calendar, on the Day of Atonement. And you can read all about it in Leviticus chapter 16. Lord willing, perhaps next year we might return to uh, work, preach through the book of Leviticus. But it was on the lid of the ark that the atonement for sin was made. Um, Aaron is told that he should bring a bull for his own sin offering to make atonement for himself and his household. And he's to slaughter the bull for a sin offering. He's to take some of the bull's blood and with his finger, he, he goes, well, he goes into the most holy place with incense uh, smoking from the, uh, from the, 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 the coals from the, uh, the bronze altar brought into the incense place. And he is to take that blood and seven times he is to sprinkle it on the front of the atonement lid. And then he is to go. And he's to make an offering, after making an offering for his own sin, he's to make an offering for Israel. And he's to take a goat and slaughter that goat uh, for the sake of the people and take its blood. And then he goes back into the most holy place and he does the same thing. Seven times with his finger he sprinkles the blood of the, the sin offering for Israel on the atonement cover. The sprinkled blood... On the atonement cover, the mercy seat, shows that sin was forgiven, that atonement was made. That the offense of the people's failure to keep the covenant law was covered by the atoning blood applied to the mercy seat. And what is beautiful about the description of the size and the dimensions of this blood-stained atonement cover is that it exactly covered the dimensions of the Ark of the Covenant law. Do you get the beauty and the grace and the wonder of this piece of furniture in the tabernacle? God in his awesome holiness, enthroned above the cherubim, beneath his feet, 
the clear demands of righteousness required to be in good relationship with God, which actually exposes our sinfulness and our uncleanness and our rebellion against God. But between His holiness and the law that exposes our sin is the blood of the atonement, sprinkled on the atonement place. His wrath is turned away. Our sins are covered and there is acceptance into God's presence. So that when God came down to dwell among his people in the tabernacle, he would not see the law that, brought, that uh, spoke of their rebellion, but the atoning blood that covered it. Atonement was actually a word created by um, William Tyndale. In his English translation, at one meant. This was the place where separated parties, God and rebellious people, can be brought back together. Reconciliation through sprinkled blood. Every year, the day of atonement, what was being accomplished, what was being foreshadowed, was the salvation that God accomplished through the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is why this is so precious to us. Uh, we're looking at the tabernacle because of, of the way it speaks of the good things that are now here, it says in the book of Hebrews. The cross of Jesus is the mercy seat for believers. Uh, the New Testament is full of uh, the language that we get from this, this point in, in, in Israel's Old Testament past. In Hebrews 2.17, Jesus came to make atonement for the sins of the people, it says. In Romans 3.25, it says this, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith, making atonement for the sins of the people. And 1 John chapter 4, verse 10, this is love. Do you know what love is? This is love. Not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. In each of these verses, the underlying word used is this sacrifice of the sprinkled blood on the atonement lid on the Ark of the Covenant. The cross of Jesus Christ, where His blood is poured out in death, is our mercy seat, perfectly covering over the offenses of our sin. And in any ways we've infringed the laws of God, that we've broken His commands, this mercy seat perfectly covers everyone. Covering over the offense of our sins, our failure to live righteous lives, well, my friends, the cross of Jesus is the place for sinners to find mercy. Mercy. It's what we need. For all who will come and repent of their sin and seek God's forgiveness by faith in Jesus Christ and His atoning death. Sin is a big deal. It doesn't stop being a big deal. It, it took something very costly to deal with it. But there is a place of mercy for sinners who will come to Christ. Have you come to Christ? Have you come to Christ? 
is his atoning blood the cover for your sin and your rebellion. See, the tabernacle points us to Jesus. The ark of the testimony and the cherubim highlight our problem. The mercy seat points us to the cross of Christ, which is the solution. Have you come to Christ? How should we respond today? Well, Jesus told a parable about two men who went to the temple to pray. There was this Bible-loving religious guy, the Pharisee, who stood by himself and he prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector he saw at the back of the, of the building. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector, who were notorious in their day for doing dodgy deals and ripping people off, the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but he beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus said, I tell you, this man rather than the other went home justified before God, right before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. You see, if you've come here today and you're, you're proud and you're self-righteous, you think, oh, I'm perfectly okay. I'm, I I'm, I'm okay. Me and God are just friends. We're, there's no problem. Well, there's no hope for you, my friends. There's no hope at all. You've not understood all that he's done for you. But to the humble who know the awfulness of their sin, who know the awesomeness of the holiness of God, there's a place of mercy at the cross of Christ. And if you've never done so, call out to God in prayer today. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And he'll take you to himself. See, the cross is the place where mercy triumphs over wrath, where forgiveness over offense, admission over exclusion, unmerited grace over well-deserved judgment. And because Jesus, having offered himself as a sacrifice of atonement and risen from the dead and ascended into heaven, we have this continual invitation now from God to draw near to him. Hebrews 4.16, let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in a time of need. Here's the privilege, my Christian friends, if you're if you're struggling today, you know you need help. There is a throne of grace you can approach any time and you can find mercy. Is there a place today where you can go and meet with God? My friends, it's here. In fact, any place in this world where Christians are gathered together, Christ is present. He says, where two or three are gathered together in my name, I'm with you. As Christians gathered, we are described in 1 Corinthians as the temple of the Holy Spirit. You are actually in the dwelling place of God. We've heard God's word to us. And after we've sung in a moment, invite the band up. We're going to share in a new covenant meal together with God. Let's bow our heads.
moment of reflection. Turn to him with whatever needs you have right now.